0: Thanks, Sean. We're really glad to see you here always. Um, I'm Annie Robertson. Um, Before I read the scripture, I want to plug our community group. Um, We are keeping our community group kind of low barrier entry. Um, So we're meeting every other Friday in Southeast Portland. Um, Instead of doing a dinner, we're just doing dessert and drinks. So if you feel like You know, I'm off of work late. I don't want to make a dinner or anything. Or you can't commit to every single week, but you still want a consistent commitment. We'd love to have you, um, whether you're single, married, anywhere in between. Um, We've got three kids of our own, ages four to middle school. So if you have kids, bring them with you. Um, If your baby's crying, we can help hold them. Um, If they're older, they can go down in the basement and watch a movie or. I don't know play lego whatever we've got it all um so yeah every other friday in southeast portland okay now would you please stand with me in reverence for reading of the holy scriptures we'll be reading from philippians 4 verses 4 through 7. rejoice in the lord always again i will say rejoice let your reasonableness be known to everyone the lord is at hand Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is the word of God. You may be seated.
1: All right. Well, um, I'm going to invite my friend Brandon Brooks up to the stage. Brandon's going to be bringing the word for us today. Yeah. Yeah. Bra- we, we are getting to know each other, but what we, we've technically known each other yep. a long time. Yep. Uh, Brandon and I were in a, a program at Western Seminary together. Uh, we were in a number of classes. Gosh, it was probably four or five years ago. Yeah, yeah. We've both stretched that program out to its... <laughs> to its max. Well, be, ...well past its breaking point. Uh, I, I graduated back in April, you're, you, maybe, maybe at the this, end of this year? Yeah, that's right, that's the yeah.
2: plan, that is the plan. Uh,
1: right. my, my, memory, my first memory of Brandon was, you know, you get in, we, the, the THM classes are kind of these like seminar format classes where you're all sitting around a table with the professor, and, and maybe it's just me, you tell me if you do this, but I'd kind of like size up all the classmates, you know? <laughs> so I'm like, all right, am I the, smart, am I the smartest guy in the room? <laughs> The answer was always no. And I remember like, you know, a day or two in being like, man, this guy, this guy, he's just got all the answers. He's so thoughtful. He's so well-spoken. Okay, he's probably the smartest guy in the room. Maybe I'm the most athletic guy in the room. There's a bunch of of nerds in here, (laughs) seminary students, and you played college football. I did, yeah. (laughs) So negative. and I was out of out of things, so uh, basically, just like this guy's really cool, and uh, at, you know, over the course of that class, and then we've we've you know gotten together a handful of times, and yeah. this this man loves Jesus, he loves the gospel, he's been the faithful pastor, uh, lead pastor of a couple of churches now, and uh, yeah, it's just, it's just an, I, I asked him to preach for us, and he said yes, and I'm just yeah. really grateful to you, so thank you yeah. for giving thank us you. your time yeah. and your energy. I mean, yeah, yeah,
2: What's up? it's all you, man. Amen. Thank you. Good morning. Would you open up your Bibles to, um, so you're already there, to Philippians chapter 4, if you're not already. <clears throat> That's where we're going to be. Um, my family would love to be here with us. Uh, they're all sick. The flu has been kind of running through our house, kind of doing damage, and so they're not here, but they're, they're going to watch uh, from home. And so uh, they send their love and their, their welcomes as well. And so I'm happy to be with you guys this morning and looking forward to getting in God's word with you. And so... Uh, Philippians chapter 4 and then we'll pray and we'll get going let's pray father we come to you this morning we thank you we thank you for your wonderful word we thank you that we can gather as your people lord from all over the city As people who who love you and who are drawn together by you and by your grace and by your spirit and by your work on the cross we ask god that you would meet us this morning that you've already have as we think about as we've been praying as we've been singing as we've been doing all these different things and we ask god that you would meet us yet again in this time as we open up your word that you would be with us that you would speak from your word that we might be built up and encouraged and that we might be helped along in our faith. And so I pray that you would use your word and use this time for that purpose. Uh, In your son's precious name we pray, amen. All right, Philippians chapter four. And so in 1929, the United States was, and really kind of the industrialized world, was hit with an unparalleled financial crisis. You guys have heard of this. The Great Depression not only hit people to their core, but it shattered and broke people as people watched as, in a moment, all of the wealth that they had spent their entire lives accumulating just evaporated right before their eyes. And so this moment really, literally brought millions of people to their knees breaking them. It got so bad that uh, during this time, unemployment soared as you can imagine, homelessness rose, millions of people went into debt. During this time, half of the United States banks failed and foreclosures and repossessions just became commonplace. Um, It became so bad that uh, the farmers, even farmers couldn't hire people to actually harvest their things. And so many people let some of their crops just rot. That's how bad it was. Now, for many people, this kind of suffering and distress was too much to bear. It was so bad and so distressing and so terrible that many people in their despair decided to take their own lives. Some people turned to lives of crime. Other people turned to substances to kind of deal with Uh, all the things that were happening to them. And part of what I want to do this morning is I want to begin addressing a question that many people are dealing with in our culture and increasingly, depending on how things go, we continue to ask these questions as Christians. How do you uh, cultivate a proper response to trouble? How do you cultivate a proper response to trouble? Or put it another way, how do you maintain peace in the face of trouble and adversity? How do you maintain peace in the face of trouble and adversity? And part of what I'm going to argue this morning is that believers have been dealing with hardship and trouble and distressing times since the fall. And none of us is immune to it. All of us have to wrestle with it and deal with it. But God has not left us without recourse. He's not left us without a legitimate response to dealing with these kinds of adversity and hardship that we face. And so this morning, part of my goal is to do a couple of things. I want to turn you Godward. I want to turn you Christward. And I want to help you know how to handle these things. Because how many of you guys know that just because you cannot control your circumstances doesn't mean that your circumstances must control you? Right? And so part of what I want to do is I want to show you some of the things that Scripture says uh, and how to deal with this. This is not exhaustive, but I'm going to show you some of these things. And so let's return to that question. How do you maintain peace in the face of trouble and adversity? How do you maintain peace in the face of trouble and adversity? And this morning, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you three things that will help you in the face of difficulty and, and distress. And the first one is to rejoice. The second one is to be gentle. The third one is to be prayerful. The first one is to rejoice. The second one is to be gentle. And the third one is to be prayerful. Let's look at all three of these in this text. And so, how do you maintain peace in the face of trouble and adversity? Paul begins by telling us, To do so by rejoicing in the Lord. Notice he says, Rejoice in the Lord. Look at verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, Rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now, the first thing I want you to notice in this text in verse 4 is I want you to notice Paul calls us to a joy in the Lord. And notice he does it emphatically, right? He's not playing around. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. And as he does it, it's almost as if he anticipates that there's someone in the back of the room saying, um, uh, um, um, you don't quite get what I'm going through. Maybe I haven't kind of told you. And notice what he does in response. He, he, he goes right back and reiterates it. Again, I say, rejoice. Right? Notice he does that. And so Paul is insistent about this. He doubles down on this. And as a matter of fact, if you've been reading the book of Philippians, you would know that this isn't the first time he's done this. You read the book of Philippians, Paul is, he calls the people to rejoice, or he talks about rejoicing some nine times throughout the book, several times mentioning himself rejoicing in spite of his troubles and trials. And other times he's calling them to rejoice. And so as we get to chapter four, part of what he's doing is he's calling them to continue on rejoicing just as he has been doing just as he has been doing in his suffering. And when he does that, he tells them to rejoice in the Lord. He's essentially saying to be glad in the Lord, to find your happiness in him, and to express it. He's telling them, in the same way that you find your happiness, there's a moment where you get gladness when you see your spouse or you see your children, and you take delight in seeing them. Uh, He's saying, in the same way that you do that, we're to have that on account of our God, that we're to be filled with happiness and joyness on account of our God. And so notice the joy he's here prescribing is different from what we tend to experience and envision on a daily basis. Typical joy is occasional. Right? The way we tend to typically think of happiness in the world is it's pretty occasional. It's dependent upon things going right. It's dependent upon uh, things hitting properly for you and being in your favor. And so it's you get a new job, you get a new house, you get a new car, you get a new something like that. And those things occasion opportunities for gladness. But notice this command to joy isn't dependent on those kinds of things. You see that? Notice he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. At all times, and every occasion, whether we're in season of ease or a season of difficulty, whether it's a time of feast, whether it's a time of famine, he says we ought to always rejoice and be glad in the Lord. And so this means that there's never an occasion when it's not when we don't when we should not be rejoicing in him. Now if you know the book of Philippians, you know that these people have legitimate reasons to be troubled. Right? They have legitimate reasons to be uh, bothered by the things that are going on in their community. Number one, their, their founder, the person who brought the gospel to this community, is imprisoned. He's in jail. We don't know yet what's going to happen. The second thing that you see is that uh, the people in this community, they're experiencing these opponents from without who are frightening opponents, he says in chapter 1, who are threatening to do them harm both spiritually and also physically that are threatening persecution. And so this is not a group of people uh, that he's calling to rejoice where everything is going well. These are people who have legitimate troubles, legitimate trials, and things that they're really kind of playing in their mind's eye. But notice yet what he calls them to do. He doubles down and says rejoice. He calls them to rejoice. And so uh, the question we have to ask is, Uh, What is this rejoicing to be grounded in? What is it to be rooted in? If it's not to be rooted in our own circumstances, our own personal tranquility, our own circumstantial peace, what is it to be rooted in and grounded in? And the answer to that is it's to be rooted in the Lord. It's to be rooted in the fact that we know and are bound to our creator in an unbreakable covenant, that we're known by the one and, and that God of the universe has graciously pardoned us from all of our sins. That he sent his son to die first and foremost for us, for all of our sins, that we might be made right with him, that we might enter into covenant relationship with him, and that as a result of that, he's become our God and we've become his people. And now he is our covenant keeper, our watcher, the one who provides for us. And so nothing should shake our sense of enthusiasm because of that. Nothing can take that away because nothing can undo and take away his commitment to us because of Jesus. And so knowing the Lord in this way should bring us joy, regardless of what season we're in. Whether we're in feast or famine, it should enable us, enable nothing to take that away. Now, in order to rejoice in this kind of way, it requires a couple different types of recognition. It requires you to see some things. In order to be able to rejoice in this way, it requires you to be not the kind of person who fixates only on the small things you do not like and ignores the things that, you, that, that are good. You know what I'm talking about? You guys ever been around that kind of person? There's some people who um, just by nature or habit or whatever, they have a way of fixating on the things that they don't like, but ignoring and completely missing the things that are going on. So for example, to give you kind of a stereotypical example, this is the, the husband whose wife, it's Thanksgiving, she wants to, she's going all out to make a wonderful dinner. And she's spending all day slaving in the kitchen to make the turkey, to make the yams, to make the, all the macaroni and cheese, the stuffing, all the stuff that you like. And then she comes and presents it before her husband. And her husband is, um, and it's a wonderful dish. It's a wonderful meal. And yet, instead of noticing all the great things that she's done, all that he sees is that the table setting is messed up. The cups aren't right. Things, these small negligible things are, are, are out of place. He misses that she sacrificed to make the meal and to do all these things. let me tell you something. In a very real sense, when we refuse to rejoice in the Lord, there's a sense in which we are being like that. There's a sense in which we're neglecting and turning a blind eye to the fact of what God has already done for us. When we are, uh, in a sense, turning an eye to the fact that God has, one, already met our greatest need. He's already made the the thing that no one else could meet in sending Jesus to die for us and to die for our sins. He's already met the greatest need. He's already done the thing that no one else could do, right? And so everything else after that becomes icing. And so in order for us to do that, you have to recognize that God has already shown profound and unceasing goodness to you. God has already shown profound and unceasing goodness to you. You have to recognize that God has already shown goodness to you in every situation, um, whether you have fully seen it and understood it or not. If you don't do that, I'll tell you, it'll be very hard for you to rejoice in the Lord always because you'll miss uh, what he's done, what you truly deserve, and what he's already kind of accomplished on your behalf. And so those are two things you want to see. The third thing you should recognize is that God has only been kind to you um, because oftentimes our unhappiness with the Lord stems from the fact that we believe that somehow, in the back of our mind, that he's wronged us, that he's done us dirty, that there's a sense in which he's withholding something that we rightly deserve or that we should rightly have. But the reality is God will never harm us. He will never, or he will never excuse me, he will never wrong us. He never sins against anyone though he never does anyone wrong because that's against who he is that's against his nature by his very nature he is just and kind and he demonstrates that in a million different ways and so God will never wrong you we all should know that he'll never do us wrong but that's not the same thing as saying this that's not the same thing as saying that God will never hurt you you get that That's not the same thing as saying that God will never do anything that hurts you, that he'll never allow something in your life that will challenge you and hurt you, that he'll never uh, discipline you because he loves you, that he'll never use hardship and trials and things like that to teach you. But even when he does, his lashes, his spankings, his lessons are really a kindness and a grace to us. When you see it in its full picture, you will see that even though God allows sometimes providential hardship to come in our way, that when we fully understand it and we fully see it on the last day, none of us, we just sang uh, in that first song, we just sang about when I see him with my eyes. On that day, none of us will be bitter about the hardships he allowed. None of us will be bitter about those kinds of things because we will see it, we will see it in its full. We will see it from an eternal perspective and one of the things that i think that's one of the things that we see in scripture that god promises he promises the christian that we look forward to one of our hopes is that there's a day coming when the lord will come and wipe away every tear from our eye that he will come and actually comfort and take away the pain that we've experienced all the things that we've experienced through the fall because the fall has oftentimes robbed us of so many things it robs us of our life of our vitality of so many different things But part of what God promises is he promises there's a day coming when he'll wipe away all of those tears and he'll make right. And one of the ways that happens is he'll be restoring things that have been broken and and taken away by living in life in a fallen world. And another way that it works is I think he'll give us perspective where we'll be able to see and see the value and the meaning of sometimes some of those challenging things that have happened. But when it's all said and done, all of us, when we see God, will only see him as being righteous and good. We'll only see him as as being righteous and good. And so, even when we suffer, we can rejoice because the Lord never stops being good to us. His kindness never takes a day off. His love never grows cold. His righteousness only continually exists. In feast and in famine, in peace and in pestilence, uh, he's always worthy of happiness in him. And because of that, Paul tells us to rejoice in him on every occasion. And so he calls us to rejoice in him on every occasion. Now, one thing I want to give you a little caveat about this. Here's what I don't mean. I'm not saying that to call someone to rejoice is not to say that you'll never cry. It's not to say that you'll never have pain or that you'll never be dissatisfied or, or go through things like that. In life, in life in a fallen world, we will experience aches, pains, distresses, and just bitter trials. That's a fact. That's part of living life in a fallen world. That's part of living life post-Genesis 3, that the world, even for the godly, sometimes there's a bitter taste to it. Sometimes there's a real uh, grief kind of attached to it. And that's part of living life in a fallen world is learning to be happy in the Lord while simultaneously recognizing that the rest of life is not what it should be, right? Right? and learning to continue to persevere even through those things. And so that's part of what it means. And so this statement is not a calling to never mourn or never to express sadness or to never have grief because some some Christians will will, uh, carry on as if Jesus following him means that you can never be angry, as if you can never have uh, 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 grief or sadness or pain. And when they do this, they forget what Jesus is actually like they forget how he actually operated in this life, that he was himself grieved in his spirit, that he cried over dying friends, that he wept over unrepentant cities, that he was frustrated and exasperated by his own disciples. And so I say all that to say that, uh, Jesus, that sadness and grief are not always incompatible with this joy that he calls us to. Sometimes the joy he calls us to comes through tears. Sometimes tears accompany it, right? And so we don't want to forget and use these kinds of texts to like beat other people over the head with them when they're grieving some serious loss, right? And so this is not a call to embrace a kind of white-knuckled joy or to plaster a fake smile on your face. That's not what he's calling us to. I had a friend, um, <coughs> we worked at a, a university, and part of our role was... Um, part of our role included kind of disciplinary stuff, meeting with students, right? And so we'd meet with students, and some of those students, those meetings would go well, and sometimes they wouldn't. As, as you can imagine, a disciplinary meeting would go. And so we'd meet up, and um, I remember we're sitting across from different tables to each other, and I see him, a student, get up and walk away. And I look at him, and he just has this, this smile, this beautiful smile plastered on his face. And I go up to him, like, yo, what happened? And he's just joking. He's like, I'm laughing to keep from crying because he was just deeply discouraged by what happened. Jesus is not calling us to do that. He's not calling us to pretend we're good when in reality we're feeling broken within. That's not what this is saying. He's not calling us to fake it until you make it, right? And so sometimes, like I said before, uh, joy and pain and sadness, they go hand in hand. Sometimes tears accompany this. And so again, let's return to our question. How do you maintain peace in the face of trouble and adversity? We just answered by rejoicing the Lord in all occasions. The second answer is by being gentle to everyone. By being gentle to everyone. Look at verse 5. He says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Now, the first thing I want to talk about is this term translated reasonableness in the ESV. Now, in Greek, um, this is a difficult word to pin down. I say that because it's, it refers to a couple different. It can refer to a couple different things. It can speak to kindness, gentleness, mildness, fairness, reasonableness, or equity, depending on the translation you have. One of the things you'll notice is that uh, some of them will say thing. If you have the NIV or something, or some of the different ones will say forbearance or gentleness or something like that. Now, the difficulty in kind of assessing which force is meant here is that this term is only used five times in the New Testament and um and sometimes more than one can fit in a particular slot and so for example if you look at the ESV the ESV will say let your reasonableness be known to all but if you look down in the margin uh, it'll say or let your gentleness be known to everyone you see that And so after studying this, I I, I believe that the actual, the best reading here is the same thing. What's seen in the NIV, the NAS, NKJV, is to let your gentleness or your kindness or your graciousness be known to all. So the term here, it speaks to the kind of leniency and kindness in dealing with others. And so Paul is telling the Philippian church, he's telling them to let their gentleness and their forbearing nature be known and evident to everyone. He wants the congregation to be known as a gracious place. He wants it to be known as that kind of space. Notice this gentleness is not something that's only reserved for people who are in your family or people who you like or admire or even believers. Notice he's saying for the community of faith, he says, I want it to be known to all that this is a place of gentleness, that this is that kind of place. You know, he's saying that our churches ought to be known, this, ought to, this is what we ought to smell of in one sense. And so we're not to be a people who are a threatening people. We're not to be a people who are unnecessarily abrasive and harsh, right? This is especially important because we live, we live in an, a place where faith is not something that is, is readily embraced by the majority of our culture. And so it's especially important, and in many ways sets us apart by not being harsh and uncaring. And so he's saying that we should be marked by respect and consideration and gentleness for others. Um, Now, the reason why this is an important saying is that when you start to get persecuted, this is the first thing that begins to get tested, right? When you start to go through, the first thing that starts to get hit is your gentleness. When people start to insult and belittle and make you look bad, the first thing that gets hit and you begin to cross off the list is this. And so he's saying, in the midst of your hardship, continue to be gentle. Continue to uh, show that gentleness. Now, to be gentle, it doesn't mean that you'll never— it doesn't mean that you'll never raise your voice. It doesn't mean you'll never call a spade a spade. It doesn't mean you'll never call something evil. right? Scripture does that. Paul will do that in the same letter. But it means we don't treat people in an abrasive and harsh unnecessarily. We don't treat people in that uncaring kind of way. right? And so this is uh, him calling us to, to live and to treat people with a kind of care and a kind of uh, kindness. And then from there he goes on in verse 5 and he says... Let your reasonableness be known to everyone or your gentleness. The Lord is at hand. And that phrase, the Lord is at hand, speaks to the reality that the Lord is spatially near to his people, that he's close by and that he's not far away. He's not an absentee God. He's not an absentee Lord. He's not uh, one who you cannot find when times get rough. Uh, I had a friend. This is my best friend growing up. This is my boy. I mean, we're, we're like, we're talking to, I mean, I don't know about y'all, but I wasn't, uh, growing up it wasn't cool to like talk on the phone every day to like dudes to do that, but we did that, you know what I'm saying? We were that tight. We talked on the phone every day, this is my boy. Um, but I remember there was a time, and we love each other, and we joke about this now, but um, I remember two guys came up to jump me, and he was with me, but he wasn't with me. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? He was with me, and when I but when the jumping started to happen, <laughs> when the guys started to push him, he disappeared. God is not like that. He's near. He's at hand. He's present. He's not that kind of person who disappears when it gets rough. And God reiterates this several times throughout Scripture. One of the things you see is like, for example, in the, in the, in the Exodus, where Pharaoh is persecuting his people and oppressing his people, Scripture says that God heard their cry and he saw the injustice committed against them. Right In the Old Testament, in Psalm 34:18, it says the Lord is close and near to the brokenhearted and that he saved those who are crushed in spirit. In Psalm 145, 18, it says the Lord is near to all who call upon him and who all who call on him in truth. Uh, in, in, the, in the law of Israel, Israel is warned not to mistreat one another. It's actually said don't be cheating and don't be mistreating one another because that person may call out to the Lord in prayer and then he will intervene. In the book of Revelation, you get this picture in, in, in the early parts of Revelation of Jesus and the churches. And the churches are these, these stars and these lampstands. And one of the pictures you get is Jesus holding the stars, the stars in his hand. That Jesus holds and is owning these churches. And that he's walking in and out, looking in and examining the lampstands in the church. And so the picture that you get is that the Lord is near his people. He's not absentee, he's not unaware that he cares for his people and he sees them, that his eyes is locked in on them. So he's not distant. He's not someone who cannot be touched or reached or anything like that. And so knowing all of this, that the Lord is at hand, it changes how we deal with our problems. It should radically shift how we deal with trouble, right? How we deal with our problems. Look at what he says in verse 6. So Paul builds on all this, and he says, uh, because of this, be anxious about nothing. Be anxious for nothing. Verse 6, he says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, (coughs) will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And so when he says be anxious for nothing we have to ask what does that mean? What he's getting at is to not allow ourselves to be twisted up in knots, to be excessively burdened and beaten down by our problems because whether you know it or not, there's a sense in which anxiety it does certain things to us. And one thing it does in particular is it perverts. It perverts kind of reality. uh, excuse me anxiety what it tends to do is it perverts the otherwise normal and legitimate response of care and concern so there's a normal and legitimate care and concern that we all should show when things happen someone get hit by a car there's a legitimate kind of care and concern something goes wrong in your house there's a legitimate kind of care and concern but what anxiety does is it takes that and puts it on steroids It takes that and exaggerates it to to the extreme. And and because of it, it gives us these uh, harassing thoughts. It oftentimes twists us up like pretzel and it robs us of our peace and our sense of well-being. And so it, it often, one of the ways it does it, fills us with fear of misfortune, fear of trouble. And that fear often becomes, we become drunk off of it, right? It can carry us away and make us so that we're not walking in sobriety, right? but we're carried away by our fears. You guys ever watched, um, they'll have these, uh, some of you are cat dog lovers. I don't have cats, but, uh, but um, if you ever watch those laser, people get those laser pointers, and they get the dog, and, and it's, it's one of those things that's pretty interesting. You point the laser pointer on the wall, and that cat or that dog just runs at it, and it's just immediately, as soon as it appears, it rivets all of its attention and concentration. It's as if nothing else exists. In a very real sense, anxiety does that to us. It begins to rear its head and steal all of our attention away from everything else to focus on that problem that oftentimes we cannot solve by ourselves. And so it begins to kind of cause us to fixate on it, right? That's what anxiety, it does. It, it, it grips us in that way and it enslaves us to these kinds of thoughts, right? And so um, when anxiety kind of catches us by its spell, what it tends to do is it stops us from being able to see God's will and what God would have us do in those moments. So all that we see are the bad things that we can do. And so this is one of the reasons why Scripture repeatedly calls us to avoid anxiety. To walk away from that kind of anxiety Because it has a way of squelching out God from the picture This is what you see for example In Mark chapter 4 in the parable of the sower If you guys remember that story there's, there's one of those soils, one of those people who hear the gospel Who it becomes unfruitful In their life because of the cares And anxieties of the world There's certain kinds of anxieties That so squelch out So they're like I can't hear in response to that gospel Right That's what anxiety tends to do. This is why God calls us again and again and again to forsake it and to pick something else up instead. And the thing he calls us to pick up to help us from those harassing barbs of anxiety is to pick up continuous petitionary prayer. He calls us to pick up continuous petitionary prayer. And so returning to our question for the last time, how should you maintain peace in the face of trouble and adversity? We just answered by rejoicing in the Lord on all occasions By being gentle to everyone And the third answer is by embracing petitionary prayer By embracing petitionary prayer um, My wife, she regularly goes to the store, right? And she'll go and do shopping And when she'll come back, she'll come with all kinds of bags And she gladly, pretty immediately As soon as she sees me, you know what she does? Drops them off to me <laughs> She comes, and, and I, don't, I don't complain about it You know why? Because I'm stronger than her. And there's a sense in which I feel like that's part of my responsibility. My wife is like 115 pounds. I'm much bigger. <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> and so, I'm much stronger. And so I, um, I have no problem with that, right? In a similar way, part of what anxiety does with us is it seems to load us down. It begins to weigh us down with the, with the weight of these problems and these things. And part of what God wants us to do is he wants us to come and lay these things at him, lay those burdens on him. In the same way that my wife does it, he wants us to bring, cast our anxieties and our burdens upon him, right? And so notice what he says in this text. Um, Paul tells us that <clears throat> don't be anxious for anything, but the alternative to anxiety in this text is what? And he says, don't be anxious about, he says, be anxious about nothing. Instead, be prayerful about everything. And notice he says the answer, the thing that we ought to do, I'm not saying this is the only thing we do, but this is what we ought to do in this text is that we should pray. And he says specifically, we should pray by bringing specific requests. That's what supplication means. It means to bring pleas. It means to bring things that God doesn't simply uh, want us to utter those general prayers that you see that mean really nothing to you. But he wants to bring our pleas, our concerns, the things that are weighing us down, and bring them and lay them before him, to bring our burdens before him. And notice that word plea implies that sometimes, sometimes you call someone up and it's leisurely, right? You have a, hey, how you doing? I'm good. Other times you're calling in, it's an emergency. It's urgent. And so some of these things, sometimes that may be the way the call is coming to the Lord. And so he says, bring your pleas, bring your supplications. He wants us to bring all those things and lay our troubles before him, casting all of our burdens before him. Just like a, father does, a child does his father in that same way. I don't know about y'all, but I have children. They have no compunction about coming to me. They'll come to me at any time about anything because I'm their dad, because I'm their provider. In the same way, that's how he calls us to be. He calls us to be those who lay all of our burdens on him, to bring all of our things. And so instead of allowing our hearts to be flooded and overwhelmed with trouble and with our fears, he tells us to flood heaven with our concerns, to flood heaven with our burdens, to respond, uh, taking that weight and transferring it on to another. And notice he says, do this with thanksgiving. And so doing it with gratitude toward his goodness to you. And so especially for the gift that he's given in Christ and in, in salvation and for the blessings that we have. And so he's calling us to acknowledge as we ask for new things, he's saying also acknowledge and be thankful for what he's already done. Because God in Christ has already borne our greatest burden. And the question we have to ask is this. If, G, if you believe, if you're a Christian and you believe God has already met your greatest need, do you believe he can meet the lesser needs? If he's already done the most difficult thing that no one else could do, do you think he can take care of the mortgage? Do you think he can provide food and clothing? Do you think he can provide you with a job? Absolutely he can, right? And so when we take this mindset, it has a way of disarming some of anxiety's sting. Because in God, we find that power. And anxiety functions kind of like that paparazzi. Have you guys ever seen how the paparazzi are? Paparazzi they harass people. They don't care about your time. They don't care about your sleep. They don't care if you're having a precious moment with your fam- family. They just intrude. And that's how anxiety is. But what Paul is telling us to do is he's saying when they come in intruding, you get to praying. That you get to lay these things on to the Lord. And so that's what he calls us to do. Not to wish our concerns away or to spend our days kind of twilling our thumbs or anything like that, he calls us to pray and to cast our burdens on the Lord, to let the Lord be the fall guy and take that rap, right? He's saying, let someone else carry that burden, remembering that the Lord has all the resources, he has all the capacity, he has all the ability, and he's willing to meet us. He's willing to meet us. And so Paul tells us to exchange our anxiety for his peace and the way we do that is through prayer. And so he promises that <clears throat> in response to our outpouring of prayer, God is going to meet our, our, us with an angst-countering peace. You see that in verse 6 and 7? God meets our prayer with an outpouring of peace that counters anxiety. And so um, one of the things you see if you look down at verse 6, he says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving— let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and mind in Christ Jesus. And so the thing you see is, uh, as we submit our needs to him, he sends us his peace. Now the thing that, notice the peace here functions as a guardian that it functions like the bodyguard, protecting our hearts and our minds from hostile things, protecting us from anxiety and from being overwhelmed and being undone and from being excessively burdened and from being uh, not sober. It enables us to continue to walk in godliness and to continue to walk in ways that he would call us to be, right? And so he's calling us not to do that so that we can operate out of clarity and sobriety and godliness. And so in times of trouble, our minds can be often so vulnerable, but God promises to give this gift to us and and his peace. And one thing to notice is that this gift that he gives of his peace is not conditioned upon uh, the beauty of your prayers or your long-windedness, right? So this is not based upon your ability to be articulate in prayer. It's nothing like that. Uh, Walter Hansen writes this. He writes, the condition for experiencing God's peace it's not that God grants us all our requests, but that we have made known all our requests to God with thanksgiving. God's peace is not the result of uh, the power of our prayers or the effectiveness of our prayers. Prayer is not an auto-suggestion, a form of self-hypnosis that produces God's peace. Prayer is our openness about our need before God, our emptiness in his presence, our absolute dependence upon him with an attitude of constant thanksgiving and complete trust. When we pray with that attitude, the focus is not at all upon what we are doing or will do, but on what God will do. And God will do something supernatural beyond the best of our abilities and thoughts. And the peace of God will guard us. The peace of God is always the gift of God rather than a humanly devised or humanly achieved. And so notice he's saying, this peace is a gift that God gives to protect our vulnerable minds from our disquieting circumstances, right? And notice he says, it's a peace that surpasses all understanding. Now what that means, that there are two ways that people have thought the way this means. What, think, thought about what this means. One is to say that the peace here surpasses all understanding in the sense that it's, it's more effective than all understanding, reasoning, or scheming. Meaning God's peace is more effective than any strategizing you could do to get yourself free from trouble. That it's better than in, any ingenuity and calming of the soul. Um, and there's some truth to that, but I don't think that's what's intended here. The other way that people have tended to read this is to say that God's peace here surpasses all understanding in the sense that his peace is beyond comprehension, that it's beyond human understanding, meaning that the peace can't be explained by reason. People might say like, why are you so calm? Last time I checked, you were four months behind on your mortgage. Why are you so calm? Why, why aren't you running up and down the streets with your head cut off? And the answer is because God has supernaturally removed that person's fear and given them a quiet trust. That's what he's getting at. John Calvin, he writes it this way. He says, nothing is more foreign to the human mind than to hope in the depth of despair, uh, in the depth of poverty to see riches, in the depth of weakness to not give way. And so he's making the point that there's, there, there's nothing more foreign to the human mind than to have hope. And so he's saying that this hope that God gives is supernatural in origin. Another writer, Moses Silva, he writes, God's peace transcends our intellectual powers precisely because believers experience it when it's unexpected in circumstances that appear to make it impossible. So you think about, for example, Paul suffering in the prison. And what is Paul doing while he's in the Philippian prison? He's singing. He's singing and rejoicing in the Lord. He's singing hymns, right? Where does that come from? You're in prison. We don't know where this is going, but that's what he's doing. He's saying that kind of peace transcends intellectual understanding. And Walter Henson adds again, he says, to be anxious because of suffering and quarrels, it's reasonable. To have peace with God in the face of opposition transcends human reason. And so he's saying that all in a very real sense, the peace that God gives to guard our hearts and minds against the bad things that are happening, he's saying that that is of supernatural origin coming from God alone. And it surpasses oftentimes our circumstances. And so all of that to say that this is is what the Lord calls us to in a very real sense, and this is what he has also provided in the gift he's given. And one of the things that I love is that this is something we don't just see in Paul and in others, but we also see it in our Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus is both that pattern for our prayer and the one who makes our prayers acceptable. Right, if you guys remember uh, on the night uh, when Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before he was betrayed, Jesus literally has the weight of the world on his shoulders. You guys remember that scene in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus is clearly having a tough time. He speaks to the three disciples, James, John, and them, and he says to them that he's distressed and he's troubled. Uh, Listen to this. He says in in verse uh, 1434 of Mark, he says, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here with me and watch. In other words, Jesus is saying that he's so grief-stricken and so burdened by the sadness of what's about to happen that it's as if he could die. But notice what he does. Notice what he does to his disciples. In this overwhelming situation, he calls them together to pray. He says, watch and pray with me. And as he does that, notice what he does. He begins lifting up petitions, specific requests, seeking that God might do something in this situation. And notice, he doesn't just do it one time. He doesn't just pray and walk away. He comes back three times, the text says, right? And as he does this, until he gets God's answer and it's clear, and as God gives his answer and it's clear, notice it's not a yes. God still says he must go to the cross. But even as he gives him the power to get up and rise and walk to that cross, to walk to that place where he could do the thing that no one else could do, where he could offer himself as that sacrifice for our sins that no one else could offer. So that we might be redeemed And so that we might also be able to walk in the same peace that he has demonstrated in the same peace that god provides and so that's what jesus comes and he does he's not just one who prescribes these things but he's also one who lives these things and so he calls us as followers of him to follow him by his grace by his strength by his power of his spirit to walk in these same things and so as we go what i want to encourage you to do is continue if you have burdens which we all do That's one thing we all have. Cast them on the Lord. Give them to the Lord. Pray with one another, as you guys have been doing, even I've seen. Uh, Let's lift up those burdens together and call upon the Lord to give us that peace and to give us that help because he's there to aid us. And the proof is in Jesus. The proof is in Jesus. Let's pray.